New Frontiers, a worldwide family of churches, together on a mission. Our goal is to see the kingdom of God established by restoring the church, making disciples, training leaders and planting churches. For more information on New Frontiers churches and other available resources, visit our website at www.newfrontiers.xtn.org. This message by Terry Virgo was first recorded at the New Frontiers International Leaders Conference 2005 in Brighton. The faces who used to be sitting in the pews of our churches here in the UK, now learning languages, cultures, far-off nations. Praise God. It's just a thrill. It's very moving. I've seen that. A video as it's been taking shape several times. It keeps on getting more added to it each time I see it. But praise the Lord for all he's given us to do together. If you have your Bible and you'd like to follow, I'm going to be reading from two places. The first in Isaiah and chapter 9. Isaiah and chapter 9, a very famous passage. And then we'll be looking back into Judges and chapter 6. Isaiah 9, a passage we often hear read at the Christmas season, but of course full of significance for world history and terribly relevant to us in our generation. We'll come in, I think, at verse 2, Isaiah 9 and verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness they will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire for the, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a wonderful promise that God's wonderful saviour, son that he will send, the one that will fulfil this prophecy, will not only sit on David's throne, but have an ever-increasing kingdom. The kingdom and rule of Christ will ever grow, it will ever uh, expand, and yet it won't be just a, a gradual, inevitable kind of evolution. There's something about it that will be like a battle. There'll be times of conflict, times perhaps of setback, times of breakthrough. And here as Isaiah is prophesying, he starts using battle language and says in verse 4, it will be as at the battle of Midian. One of the great and famous battles of Israel's history there's something about the Battle of Midian which characterizes something of the extraordinary breakthrough that will come as the kingdom of Christ expands among the nations. As the government of God goes from nation to nation, as we see on our screen places into Asia, into Russia, into Africa, on and on and on, there will be moments where, yes, people who sit in darkness will suddenly see a great light. The, the rule and government of Christ will start breaking in. Other seasons there will be times of yeah, decay and, and, and times of uh, difficulty. Then God will do a fresh new thing, like he did at the Battle of Midian. And I believe that God wants to speak to us in my two sessions about the Battle of Midian. So, as I said, I'd like you to turn to Judges 6, where this famous battle took place, which Isaiah was reminded of as he spoke of this wonderful triumphant reign of Christ that would ever grow. And we'll read uh, some of this sixth chapter to remind us of the background. 
Judges chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites, the sons of the east, and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and with their tents and would come like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. And it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Twas I who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now the Lord's abandoned us, given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this might and strength of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my father is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Lord Jesus, we honor you here tonight as our great king. We thank you for your ever-increasing government rule and reign in the nations Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for the wonder of being caught up in your plan. Father, we ask you right now, in Jesus' name, for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we're not looking at some strange old story, but feeling ourselves caught up by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do pray for the relevance of this passage to impact us. Father, you know we love to serve you. We love to do the works you've given us to do. But Lord, we are so helped when we see it against the backdrop of your promises and the big picture of what you're doing. So Father, I'm asking you right now in the name of Jesus for the help, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that Lord, we might go from this place fortified, motivated by the work of your Spirit within, by giving us understanding and motivation to keep going because of the inevitable triumph of the rule of Christ. Move on us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the setting for the story is that the Israelites, who had known unhindered success under Joshua, outstanding triumphs, taking one city after another, pressing into the land, had now come to a season of spiritual decline. And they are now under the boot of the Midianites, and the story tells us that now the Israelites have become insignificant in terms of their clout, and uh, the Midianites suddenly rushed in, great numbers of them, uh, for locusts, the story says, and just devoured uh, their crops, their harvest, and kept the Israelites very much under their heel. And uh, as they did that, they were resorting to living in fear, living in caves, they were just digging in, Uh, there was no sense of uh, let's go and fight, no they'd lost their courage, they were now not in a place of any kind of triumph whatever. And uh, 
We need to ask ourselves, why were they in this condition? Why was this happening to them? Why were they no longer successful as they had been in Joshua's day? Why was it in this kind of a condition? And uh, it's an interesting thing to see because uh, if you look at it, well, the simple answer is the Midianites. The Midianites were too powerful for them. They were an effective army. They were, had a great strategy for keeping the Israelites in their place. And this is the obvious answer uh, for their defeat. They just hit an enemy that was too strong for them. And it's interesting for us as we look at a story like this because, yes, the church certainly in some of our nations, certainly here in Western Europe, looks like a church somewhat in defeat, doesn't look like an effective, powerful army. We sing songs about marching. We have aspirations more and more to be the army of God. But often we are discarded, we're brushed to one side. Some of the big moral issues that we have to face in our land when we raise a Christian voice, it is quickly tossed aside as though irrelevant, some bygone expression of an old moral value that means nothing today. And the church is often floundering and not in a place of great success. That has been our experience in this nation. That's how the popular media would uh, picture the church today. We can identify Uh, with this season. We might say, why is it then? Why is it the church is not so successful in our day? Well, there are powerful forces against us. It could be argued the sort of forces that haven't been faced before are being faced by our modern generation. Sophisticated, entrenched commitment to other values. The television age, the media, entertainment. There are great powers and forces out there. Our forefathers didn't fight these kind of battles we can sometimes feel. It's interesting to notice if you read the commentaries about uh, what happened here, I've seen at least in one or two of the commentaries that the reason the Israelites were defeated was that they had never before come up against camel power. Uh, The Midianites used camels in their warfare and moved with great speed. And some of the commentators say, well, Israel had never faced enemies like this, and so camel power, well, it was kind of a bit too much for them to handle, and so they were being defeated. You might wonder, well, what about Red Sea power? What about Jericho Wall power? It doesn't seem to make much sense to suddenly say, well, of course, the camels were too much for the God of Israel. And I think we need to take note of that when we say, well, how come the church is in decline? Well, of course, it's the television generation and it's all these difficult things. Our forefathers never uh, knew them before, so of course it's harder for us. Well, actually, I want us to brush aside camel theology and see what does the actual passage say? What does it teach? What does it say here? It doesn't say it was because the Midianites were too strong. It doesn't say that the camels were too forceful. You might say, well, isn't God on the throne? Where's God? Actually, the situation was proof that God was still on the throne. What do you mean? Surely the Israelites have been defeated. Yeah, actually, that was the outworking of God being on the throne in this particular passage. It says so plainly in the first verse that I read to you, Judges 6, verse 1, the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. It wasn't the Midianites, nor was it the camels. Their problem was with God. God was withstanding them. God was putting them through this experience. And you can read that in a number of places in the book of Judges. We find in Judges 2.15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them. That's speaking of Israel. Judges 3.12, the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. And so we see here... God is strengthening the enemies of his people. He is fortifying them against Israel. Now that's not unknown throughout the Old Testament. We find that God raises up mighty Syria as his rod of anger to chastise Israel. That's what it says. Now the man in the street, if you like, would look on and say, well look, Assyria is a powerful nation. The Bible says, no, it's just God's stick to beat his child because his child isn't as he would have him. God is focused on his church. He's focused on his people right through the ages. He's focused not simply on reaching out with a message that gets ever more uh, distorted and mingled. He's looking for the truth and the light and the purity of devotion to God to be multiplied among the nations. 
The whole point is God is looking for the heart of the nations. And it's no good when Israel starts not representing him. And so we find that is their problem at this time. Not that their enemies were somehow too strong for God, but they were no longer walking with God, and God was now withstanding them. Nowhere in Old Testament history will you find Israel, when they are walking with God, that they are defeated. They're always successful when they are walking with God. But there are times of difficulty, and they are when they are not walking with God. So here God is withstanding them. That's their problem. And tragically, there were those leading them at that time who didn't know how to lead them. And so we read these sad words in Judges 2.7. The generation which had seen all the great work which God had done, had died. Right? The generation that saw Joshua's triumphs, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the demonstrations of God's power against such things as the Jericho walls and great armies that came against them and God moved in. That generation that had been exposed to the authentic God of Israel, that generation had died. And now a generation arose that didn't know the Lord. It says in in Judges 2.10, a generation arose that didn't know God. It's tragic when the people of God are led by people who don't actually know God. That's what happened in Jesus' day. When Jesus came to Israel, they were led by people who didn't know God. They said, we are Abraham's children. Jesus said, if you are children of Abraham, you do what Abraham did. They were leading a nation, but they didn't know God. And here at this time, people of Israel were in terrible decline, and their leaders, the ones who had had exposure in the past to God's power, had died. Another generation arose, and they thought, oh, this is what it's like then. And that can happen in church life. People can forget what it used to be. Forget the wonderful days when God was moving in power, and it can be that the church is led by those who don't expect anything to happen and begin to settle for the status quo and begin to teach us how to live in caves and dens and think that's what it's all about. But happily, that's not the whole story because we do find that they began to cry to the Lord. That's a much better way than settling for the status quo. They begin to say, oh God, where are you? And the story begins to turn because God is getting what he was after in humbling them. God sometimes allows us to go through difficult circumstances to humble us, to get us again to start praying, God, will you act? Will you move? Will you come through? Beginning to show us, hey, when we begin to account that God is for us and amongst us, all sorts of things are possible. And so we need to start praying and saying, God, please move, please act, please step on the scene. And so we find that happening in the story. They begin to pray. Now, it's interesting that when we begin to pray, sometimes we get our focus wrong. You can begin to say, oh, God, smash the Midianites. God, get rid of the enemy. I'm sure that was happening in Jesus' day. People would have prayed, oh, God, get rid of the Romans. But the problem wasn't get rid of the Midianites. The problem was get your own hearts right. And it's important that when we pray, we're not just saying, oh, God, will you please smash the entertainment industry? Or, oh, God, will you please get rid of this or get rid of that? When God is not demonstrating his power amongst us, it's a time to humble ourselves and say, Lord, is there some place we're out of step with you? But that's exactly how this story turns. Because as they begin to pray, God sends a prophet to them. God begins to explain what's happening. God doesn't just chastise and not explain. It's very good when you chastise your child to explain why you're doing it. I used to say to my kids, now look me in the eye, this is why this is happening. Right? You understand? This is why you're getting a whack. This is what it's all about. I'm not just getting angry. I'm explaining to you. I'm going to try to teach you to obey me. And God cares for his flock, and he begins to speak to them. And when they pray, he sends a prophet to explain. So they're not just bewildered by being knocked about. God wants to bring them through it. God is moved with compassion. He loves his people. He doesn't want to see his people defeated. It's not glorifying to his name. It's not glorifying to God's name in our nation to see the church laughed at and mocked. It's not glorifying. As we cry out to him, God begins to bring explanation. God begins to speak into the situation. He not only speaks into the situation, as we'll see over the two sessions I'm taking with you, three things happen. A prophet explains, a fresh anointed leader is raised up, and an army is raised up behind him. 
You see that pattern happening in the scripture. You'll find here a prophet, then Gideon, then his army. You'll find later on Samuel arises, then the new anointing under David, then David's army. Even into the New Testament, John the Baptist, a prophetic voice, comes Jesus, the anointed, behind him, an army of disciples. God begins to act. He speaks. He awakens people to reality, prophetic reality. Wake up to the truth. Wake up to what the people of God really are. Wake up to the authentic God, the real God, the God of covenant faithfulness. And then along comes fresh anointing. And this will happen all around the world. God will raise up anointed voices that will bring clarity and light. And on the back of that, fresh anointed young men and women to fulfill their destiny. And then you'll find clusters of teams and people that will arise, nation after nation. This Gideon story will be lived out again and again and again. And the increase of the government of Christ will come again and again. But when we step away from pure devotion to God's way, when we begin to mingle, because that's the prophetic explanation, you are mingling with the gods of the land. God starts withdrawing and has to correct them again. That's happening all around the world today. God's arresting his church. He's saying, come on, church. Come back to my word. Come back to the reality. Come back to pure devotion. That's what had to happen to them. They had to have a voice that arrested them and reminded them of the past. You notice he said to them in uh, verse 9, of chapter 6, as we read it, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. Or verse 8, it was I who brought you up from Egypt. I brought you out from slavery. Now come on, come back to your pure devotion to me. This is where you've gone wrong. It's not that the Midianites are so strong. It's not that camels are so powerful. I am, at this moment, not fighting for you. I am stopping you in your tracks. You say, does that still happen in the New Testament? Or is that just Old Testament stuff? Well, if we read the letters in Revelation 2 and 3, we find that Jesus speaks to churches. He says to them, I've got something against you. That's a scary word for the Lord of glory to say to your church or mine. I've got something against you. You are tolerating this. You are mingling with that. You're playing around with this. Listen, I'm speaking to you. God cares about the purity of his church. He cares about the reality of his being honored amongst us with real devotion. He says, you've begun to serve the Baals. You forgot the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. I've just finished a, a most moving, stirring book by a man called Raymond Ortland called God's Unfaithful Wife. And it takes all the scriptures right through the Old Testament then carries it into New Testament of how God's heart ached in terms of the fact he said to Israel, you are my wife, you are my bride, we're betrothed together. That the Israel was seen like the wife of Yahweh. And yet they kept going after other gods, and so he, he accuses them of adultery. He says, look, you're, you're supposed to be my bride, what are you doing? And so you'll find every time that starts happening, God addresses them. And as you look into books like Hosea and Jeremiah and elsewhere, where God really reveals his heartache, he says, you're my bride. What are you doing going after these other gods? What are you doing? I'm the one who brought you out. And it becomes more and more clear that God is a jealous God. That becomes more apparent as you dig into the Old Testament. Now, if we were inventing God and we were coming up with a God of our own imagination, this is not an attribute that we would suggest. You know, this is, what should we have about God? Well, jealous? Hmm, don't think so. It's a pretty ugly theme to us as we, first of all, think about it. It's not an attractive theme. I want to come back to that shortly. But when we think of jealousy, we think of it as a negative. We can think of jealousy as something full of envy, spite, malice, maybe pride. But that's seeing jealousy from merely a human perspective. With all the ugly attributes of our fallen nature. Whereas the Bible says very explicitly, and we need just to feel the weight of it, even in Exodus 20 and verse 5, in the Ten Commandments, right in the center, this isn't some peripheral thing, right in the center of giving the Ten Commandments, God says that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You just need to know that, Israel. When God is speaking from the mountain and he's giving the Ten Commandments and the smoke's 
uh, coming from the mountain and the whole thing shaking as lightning and thunder. God says, listen, here's my self-revelation. You need to know this. I am a jealous God. Man didn't dream that up. The gods of the Greeks would have thought, crazy, a jealous God? Well, you've got this God, you've got this God. There's competition, it's not jealous. I mean, you can have as many gods as you like. Israel's God's very different. No, I am a jealous God. Because I'm in a unique relationship with you. In Exodus 34, just after Moses has asked God, please show me your glory. God says, I will let my name pass before you. This is a time of very special revelation of what God is like. I will let my name pass before you. And then you get in Exodus 34, 14, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. This isn't a casual thing. It's part of a a man saying, please show me what you're really like. I long to get closer. Can I see more of God? Yes, here I come. Jealous. Lord, that, yeah, well, how come now God is not fighting for us against the Midianites? Well, here comes the explanation. You started flirting with their gods. But can't we look to it? No, no, you're my wife. You're in relationship with me. You're not just strolling the earth. You are my beautiful bride that I took out of Egypt. I brought you out. Blood was shed. Miracles happened. I vindicated you. I brought you out to myself. I celebrated over you. I brought you to myself in love. I'm giving you a possession now, a land flowing with milk and honey, my beloved bride. I'm bringing you in. And now you're flirting with other men. That's the language of Scripture. In fact, I was shocked working through this book, God's Unfaithful Wife, at the the raw edge of the language that God uses. How horrified he is their conduct, and all it is is they're going after other gods. But he sees it in terms of disloyalty within marriage. Now this word jealousy, you'll find it again and again, and usually when God uses the word jealousy, it's together with an action situation. And so sometimes he is jealous with anger, and so acts with anger associated with his jealousy, and sometimes it's out of his uh, jealousy is expressed in compassion. So he says in Zechariah, I am very jealous for Zion. And he determines to renew them out of his jealousy for them. But it speaks of a loving passion for his people. Our failure to understand jealousy is probably rooted in our own failure to understand the nature of God's relationship, his covenant relationship with his people. Professor Tasker says this, married persons who felt no jealousy at the intrusion of a lover or an adulterer into their home would surely be lacking in moral perception. For the exclusiveness of marriage is the essence of marriage. He goes on to say, the more tender the bridegroom, the more outraged he would be at the adultery of his wife. The more horrified, the more jealous... And here we have in God, the pure, holy God, watching his bride go after other gods and being outraged and heartbroken. And he says, I won't have it. See, toleration is a virtue, but not in these contexts. God doesn't embrace toleration when he sees his people going after other gods. We say, well, what's this got to do with today? Well, I do believe we need to learn, beware the danger of the other gods that infiltrate into our lives. Jesus says quite plainly, you cannot serve God and mammon. He talks about money as though it was a God. It's a God who offers you security, safety. Don't be anxious. I can, I can free you from anxiety. I can, I can be like a God to you. Money is saying, look, I'll free you from anxiety. I'll give you prestige. I'll give you peace. I'll give you joy. I'm like a God. Just honor me. Respect me. Live toward me. Think of what I can do for you. Uh, And govern your life. Make your uh, decisions based on money accumulating and uh, possessing and and building uh, around it. The freedoms that come from uh, possessing. It's like another God offering you peace and joys, safety, freedom from anxiety. He's saying, give me your devotion. And Jesus speaks very plainly about the defilement of money, what it can do to us. It's a, it's a God in our generation that can infiltrate church. Yes. 
And even sometimes with mingled doctrines that almost make it sound acceptable that we should love money. And it can, it can confuse us when God says, listen, I am your freedom from fear. I am your shepherd. I'll look after you. Put first the kingdom. Everything else will be added to you. The kingdom of God's like treasure that someone's found and sells everything else so they can have this. You don't get distorted. You don't, no, you get clear because I am your treasure. I am your great reward. And so the gods of money, the gods of sex in our generation, people fooling around on the edges, and sadly in the Old Testament so often, the mingling with false gods had sexual overtones. God was furious with that. And so we find there comes this explanation. And we find it in our day, all kinds of false values infiltrating the church. I'm so thrilled when I look at our video tonight and I see dear friends who said, yeah, we'll go. We'll go. We'll go to Japan. We'll go to Cambodia. We'll go, we'll go to the Philippines. We'll go. Wherever God takes us, we'll go. They're saying, no, I'm living by another standard. I'm, I'm really honoring God in real terms. Or even within our own nation, as we heard, yeah, we're going down to this tough area. We just feel we want to live it out. We're saying the Lord is God. He will be our God. And so God begins to say to them, listen, this is what it's about. And there begins a repentance, first of all, in one man. I want to move on to him now. Because first of all comes the prophetic explanation. The prophetic explanation is this. God's against you. God will not bless this compromise I'm looking for change. And then he begins to act in mercy. It's a wonderful thing that the whole passage begins that they were given into the hands of the Midianites seven years. There's like an end to it. It's not forever. It's not indefinite. God is so merciful. He says, right, I will bring this to a conclusion. I will bring change. I believe with all my heart we will see God breathe afresh on his church. As we especially take seriously what God is saying in this passage. So first of all, the explanation. And then secondly, the man God uses. And this is what we'll be looking at for the remainder of our time this evening here. The man God begins to work with freshly. That's always God's way. He begins to engage with a person. Bible history is just full of that. Church history is full of it. He just begins to engage with someone, begins to speak promises to them in his mercy and kindness and grace. Not that they look more qualified than anybody else, but he begins to engage with a man. It says, first of all, an angel came. An angel came, but an angel isn't permitted to do the job. The angel communicates, the man has to do the job. God's looking for human flesh and blood people that can do this job for him. And here we find God beginning to speak, and here he speaks to Gideon. God invests his purpose in people. And it's so fascinating to read how he begins to speak to Abraham, or a Moses, or a Simon. God reveals himself to people, develops a relationship with them. And history turns on these relationships. I've just started reading a biography of William Booth. Just seeing this young Wesleyan preacher as he was getting stirred about England and London and getting passionate and this thing beginning to burn in his heart. And as we heard earlier about Moses today, God begins to engage with the one person, but he's got a nation in his thoughts. And soon, around the world, even in that day, before aeroplanes and and, uh, telephones, these guys are going around the world and they begin to multiply uh, their, as we would say, churches. And God just engaging with a man whose heart begins to break. And here God begins to engage with Gideon. And we might say, well, this is a tough scene. God's going to need a really, a really strong man. But actually, instead of finding a strong man, it looks as though he's almost looking for the weakest. And uh, that's so encouraging to us, isn't it? As we sang that new song, had that line on it, let the weak say, I'm strong. And that's deeply rooted in this story. And let's not forget again, this is how the increase of the government of Christ will be, this is what Isaiah said, it will be like the battle of Midian. There are features in this battle which will be true for the ever-increasing government. And this is one of the things that's significant. God chooses a man and he doesn't need someone who's strong and powerful. He doesn't need someone who's impressive. We can often think that. We can see a big pop star or a rock group or we can see maybe a high profile sporting personality and think if only they would be converted how influential they would be 
And we're often attached to them, all kinds of significance, and God doesn't seem over-impressed. He finds a guy who looks pretty hopeless. And he begins to work in Gideon's life. God is looking around this room, see if he can find anyone hopeless enough. <laughs> and here, this, you know, often, we often hear about getting a fleece. This guy is so needy, so vulnerable. And uh, he says, if you will do this, I'll believe. And you can write in the margin, no, I won't, because in the next one, but now if you do that, I'll believe. And that's the whole problem with fleeces and getting, say, God, will you please show me? You don't need a fleece when God's just said, I'm sending you. God is very merciful and kind. But it's so evident when Gideon says this wonderful promise, if you will do it, I've noticed it, I wrote it in my own margin, actually, earlier today, Judges 7.37, he says, if there's dew on the fleece only, if it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And I put in the margin, no, he didn't, because the next, he gets what he asked for. He says, no, if you do another one, please. And even then, he's unsure. So God chose a man very weak in himself. I find it so encouraging that God is not put off by our weakness God is not limited by our weakness. God doesn't say, no, 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 this guy hasn't got a good enough background. He hasn't got good enough training, not good enough education. No, no, God is not in any way limited. When he begins, when he says, right, I've said the word, now it's time to move again. God's saying, it's a new day, I'm going to do a new thing. He is not thrown by weakness. He can commit himself in such a way that his strength is perfected in weakness. Some people are too strong for God. I mean, like Moses and Jacob, when they start, they're too strong. God has to weaken them and then use them when they are weak. Hallelujah. So we find here a guy who, to me, looks very weak indeed. Very vulnerable, doesn't seem to have much to commend himself, and God begins to speak to him. He's saying, why do you speak to me? Why do you address me? I'm a nobody. My father's house is nothing. I'm an unimpressive person. Hallelujah. God can come to unimpressive people and begin to speak. The only thing I find attractive about Gideon is that he is actually very thirsty for God. I believe that we can see that when he says, the Lord is with you. And this, it's almost like you touch him and this is what comes out of him. If the Lord's with us, where are the miracles? If the Lord's with us. Why aren't we seeing you work in our day and generation if the Lord is with us? And it's not as though he is indifferent to the situation. He's weak, but he longs for God. He's aware of his own vulnerability, but he has a longing. Oh God, won't you vindicate your name? Does God find that in your heart? That when God says something to you, you think, but Lord, where? Why? Can't we see it? God wants that kind of longing. He loves to engage with that kind of longing. The sort of thing that Nehemiah showed when he first heard that Zion was in ruins, it just broke his heart. He couldn't settle for it. He couldn't say, oh, it's a shame about the situation over there. God doesn't want us to be like that as we hear about the church in our generation, in our day. Here in the UK, we hear such dreadful things about the church and the way it's discarded and the way even those within the church are willing to change and, and reshape their philosophies to try and make it more acceptable. And we think, Lord Jesus, surely you've got something better than this. And I believe God loves to find that in people's hearts, that we're saying, Lord, I long for something better. And here we find in Gideon that kind of word, Lord, where are the miracles? If you're here, where are the miracles? I don't think he had taken on board the kind of Joshua philosophy that the power was just to get us into the land. Power was just at the beginning. You find sometimes people teach that in the church. Oh, the power was just in the book of Acts, just to get the thing started. And of course, now we have the Bible. We don't have the power anymore. And I believe Gideon wouldn't have accepted that kind of philosophy. Oh, it used to happen in Joshua's day. It doesn't happen anymore. I think we say, no, we won't have that. It's the God of the Bible we want to know. It's the God of the Bible who acts and speaks and engages and is amongst us and manifests his presence. That's the God I want to know. I don't want to know just the history book. I want to meet him. I want my generation to meet him. I want my contemporaries to meet the authentic God. Hallelujah. I was so thrilled to hear of some of the wonderful miracles that happened down at the Bournemouth Soccer Stadium and uh, just hearing from Guy 
earlier on this evening. Guy, why don't you come? Where are you, Guy? Come and tell us. I'm just reminded of what you told us. Let's have some up-to-date testimony of that lady. Just the way you told me would be good. Um, <coughs> the, uh, Lex and uh, the evangelist had a fantastic time praying for the sick, just there and then, going with words of knowledge, running into the cra- crowds, picking out people. And one uh, lady, when Lex rebuked sickness and uh, just brought the anointing of God on this whole sort of stand, one lady felt tingling all over. She had Parkinson's. And uh, she decided that uh, God was certainly touching her life, but obviously feeling a little bit nervous about saying anything too soon on that occasion. So she went back to her hometown and her church, spoke to her leader, and uh, the news came back the following day. She felt God had healed her. And so a few days later, she went for her routine monthly checkup. And uh, they said, okay, put your hands out over the table. Uh, She couldn't move her left hand before, and her right hand, she could just very occasionally move a digit. And they said, right, start with your right hand. What can you do? And she went... (laughs) So they said, what... That's remarkable. Uh, can, we, can we see if there's any movement in your left hand? So she went. So that they said, well, you, you normally can't move your left arm almost above your shoulder. Try, try moving it. She said, how about that? <laughs> so, wow. She says, you think that's impressive? Try this. <laughs> and... So they asked her if she'd taken some drugs or, you know, what, what was going on. And she said she'd encountered Jesus and Jesus had healed her. And uh, they, they, they were baffled. They tried to come up with an explanation. They said, perhaps this is Parkinson's in remission. And she said, have you ever heard of that before? I said, well, no, but we're, we're baffled. We need to have that longing that says, Lord, where are you? Stepping out with God, see what he will do. And uh, I believe Gideon was saying, no, this is who you are, Lord. This is what you're like. This is the sort of thing you do. So where are you? And God isn't going to disappoint him as the story goes on. And I believe God would have us have in our heart, Lord Jesus, I want you to manifest your wonderful love, mercy, compassion for the sick and suffering. Come and demonstrate your power. So this one thing Gideon had, he was weak, but he was longing for God. God wants us to have that attitude that we're longing for him to come, that we care, we are passionate in caring for God to come, that we are not settling for something less than that. I remember hearing, and I've told the story before of Buck Singh, that when he went to see Mount Everest, uh, he went with a group, he says in one of his books, he tells testimony that he went and as he arrived at the mountain, he was looking up at the mountain and uh, as he stood there, uh, people were looking and eyeing and ooing and saying, look at this, this is amazing, the early morning was Mount Everest. And he said that uh, as people were looking, he and himself was surprised to feel disappointed in his heart. And uh, the guide uh, observed what was happening to him but realized people were fidgeting and wanting to move on now. And uh, he said to Buck Singh, I said, look, we must move now. People want to move. But if you will just wait here a quarter of an hour, we will move slowly. You will catch us, but just wait here. And so Buck Singh said he stood there and he's looking up at Mount Everest. And suddenly he said it was as though the sun burned right through the cloud, the faint cloud that was there. And as the, the mists lifted, suddenly he said it was as though the mountain took a massive step forward. And he said it was just overwhelming as he looked at this mountain, just absolutely thrilled with what he was looking at. And he said later on he went and caught up with the others and he said there are some 20 people travelling around the world who say, I saw Mount Everest at dawn. He said, I have to testify, they saw nothing. You know, lots of people today say, well, yeah, I've seen the Lord, I know the Lord. I want to know you, Lord, so that you step forward. So the God of the Scripture steps forward. I feel that's him. That's him. 
on the move. That's him working. And our generation can wake up to him. I believe Gideon was saying, Lord, if you're for us, then let's see it happen, please. And I don't believe God was offended with that attitude. I believe God's looking for that kind of heart longing that God would speak. Are you God hungry? There's something about Jacob. He was not a very pleasant personality, but he had this hunger for God. He said, I want you, God. When Moses said, I've seen your grace, but will you show me your glory? Are you God hungry? Or do you just go along with what seems to be the culture of church life today? It's so uh, easy when you get saved to learn the rules. Some of us actually who were raised in Christian homes find that perhaps one of the most difficult things that we just get used to what is the status quo at that time. Sometimes people who come in a little later are hungrier for some more reality and press through. So where's the God of the Bible? I believe that God's looking for that in us. So let's, in a day where the church looks as though it's hiding away, God is looking around to see some Gideons and in their hearts are saying, Lord, where are you? Won't you do what we can't do? Something that displays how awesome you are. And then God begins to speak to him. It says now this wonderful statement, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Have I not sent you? Surely I will be with you. It's an extraordinary conversation. And God is speaking to him so quickly. He says, names him straight away, you valiant warrior. That's just his opening remark. That's how he speaks to him. It's an extraordinary thing. It's like the God who spoke into nothing and said, let there be. And it burst into being. It's the same God who spoke and it existed. And God does that. It comes to Abraham, or Abram as he was, and says, you will be Abraham, and speaks into his life. Transformation. And the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's what God says of me, that's what I now am. It's God who, by his grace, gives me an identity which is foreign to my personality, perhaps. Here's a guy hiding. He's working with the wheat in the wine press, you're supposed to work with it outside so it catches the breeze. You're threshing and threshing and the breeze takes the chaff and you purify what you're working with. He's doing this in a cave. He's doing it in restricted circumstances. He's fearful. He's an unimpressive guy. And God says to him, you valiant warrior. You think, well, is God naive? You know, what's with God? Doesn't he see? Can't he understand? I don't even understand this guy is not a valiant What are you doing? Why are you talking to him like that? Well, I've been looking at that and wondering about that. Can't God see? Well, the reality is this. What does Gideon become? Well, taking 300 guys against thousands and without any weaponry, I'd say that's pretty valiant. I'd say, yeah, he's, he certainly becomes a valiant warrior. Now, God could have said to him, uh, now look, I'll, I'll see if I can make a soldier of you. But he doesn't say that. He says, you valiant warrior. God somehow sees the ultimate. God sees what he's going to be. God sees what he's going to make him, and he's happy to give him the title at the beginning. He's happy to say in advance, this is who you're going to be. This is what I'm going to make you. God celebrates his ability to bring us from here to there and says, I can start speaking of you as, th- as though you were that now. And then we begin to line up with the way he sees us. We can step into his actual reality. Not that God is missing the way, being naive, being optimistic. God is saying exactly what this man's going to be. Exactly what he's going to be. But he's saying it in advance of his being it, so he can rise in faith to his new name. But God says to us, if any man is in Christ, there's a new creation. We're to rise to that, not what we used to be. Let the weak man say, I am mighty. We're to rise to the identity that God has given us, that by the grace of God, we are what we are. God's call has breathtaking power. God's call overcomes all limitations. God's call guarantees God's presence and sufficiency. That God's very call means, yes, you can do this thing. See, when God calls us, he's not saying, well, see if you can have a go, see how it works. He's committing himself to us 
and to know that we're sent. When we begin to plant a new church, whether it's in another urban area around London, whether it's in far-flung uh, nations of the ends of the earth, we can say, now God sent me, and he's given me this title. And he says, surely I will be with you. Have I not sent you? If God sends us, we have the guarantee of his commitment with us. It changes everything. You might say, well, I'm so weak in myself. No, no, God says you're a valiant warrior. Because God knows what you will ultimately accomplish. Struggling with new language, struggling to make friends, struggling with a new church plant to press through the 40, the 50. Can we ever reach 100? Hey, we need to say, God says, I've sent you, I am with you. And we take courage from that. This is how God works. He begins to raise up. He cares not how weak the person is. And then commits himself to stand with us. Thoroughly engaging in the battle. He introduces us into his ever-expanding kingdom. He is not limited by our weakness. Have I not sent you? His assessment of you is the authentic one. What the enemy may say to you, you're hopeless, you haven't got what it takes. Look at you, you're trying to be a mother, you can't raise these kids. Look at you, you're supposed to be this, you can't do it. If you allow the enemy to shape your thinking about yourself... You are missing this wonderful provision that God is willing to give you his authentic view of who you are. You are my child in Christ with all my provision available to you. And we must rise to that in confidence and certainty that God will bring us through to what he has called us to be. And he becomes a man of faith. You might say, how how does Gideon, you call him a man of faith? Well, yes, he's there in the book of Hebrews And chapter 11, he makes it to that great chapter. He's named there, and it says, uh, Certain people, out of weakness, became strong, put foreign armies to flight. Well, if that's not Gideon, who is it? Out of weakness became strong. How? By faith. By faith. We get into Hebrews 11 by faith. It's important that we believe God's assessment of us. Do you believe God's assessment of you? You're my child. You're in Christ. I am all that you need. I can see you through. I can make you a winner. God is saying all these wonderful promises to us. But we must rise to faith. I believe God would say this to us. God does not despise your weakness, but he cannot bless your unbelief. It's so important that we get beyond that place where we say, well, I'm just a grasshopper. God said of Israel, when they looked at the land, they said, but we're just grasshoppers. God says, how long will you disregard me? How long will you speak against me virtually? And they said, well, no, 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 we're not saying anything against you. We just can't get in the land here. It's just that we're grasshoppers and the land is tough and the cities are high and, and well defended. It's difficult. And God says, how long will you not believe me? And we think, well, it's just my problem. God says, no, come on, begin to believe me. And as we press forward, we've got to go with that faith element. It's not just having a go. It's saying, no, God, you will stand with us. You will empower. You will enable. You will fortify us and see us through. So he becomes, from weakness, he became strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Hallelujah. Through exploits of faith that God gave him to do. Just two more things here. He was a man who became obedient to God at home base. Yeah, it was in his own home, this compromise. We didn't read the whole passage. We don't really have time to read these quite long chapters. But we find that God has called him. And then God says to him, right, in your own home, in your father's household. Yes, there is a foreign God. This, this invasion of compromise is in your own home. There's compromise at home. And the implications of dealing with it can be scary. Well, well, there's family members involved. And you can find that you're in a compromising situation because, yeah, well, there are family members. I'm not sure how pleased he would be if I did this. I'm not sure what they would think if we said, we're going to do this, we're going to put God first. I mean, there's so much at stake. Pulling down that idol is a major deal. But God says, if you're not going to pull down that idol, you cannot go from here. God wants Gideon to lead the army, but he has to be authentic in his own life. He has to deal with the compromise in his own home. And God would say that to us. We must 
Be authentic. It's no good our going to the world and saying, listen, you must know God, you must obey God, you must walk in the light, but secretly have compromise in our own home. Compromise in front of our own computer. Compromise when we're watching the television. Compromise in relationships we have in the workplace or elsewhere. We know God is not happy with. And somehow we say, well, God knows about it. God is very merciful. But we stay in this messy relationship. And God is saying, come on out from it. I want you to be ruthless. I want you to pull it down. I want you to have done with compromise. That's what God's call is to his church today. He's looking for pure devotion. I do believe that when God sees that in us, we'll see such a release of his blessing and favor as we deal with this issue where he's saying, look, I want your heart. I don't want you looking after other things, giving your heart to those things that are not me. They're not from me. They're not for you. And so Gideon has to be thorough in pulling down this false god in his own home. Even here, there's that fear side that seems to be there. He does it by night. He does it with some friends. But he does it. He takes the step of saying, right, I am going to deal with compromise in my own life. I'm going to deal with it. God wants us to be clear, dealing with all areas of compromise, especially at home base. And then last of all, It says in verse 34, before we come to this great gathering of a mighty army, it says in verse 34, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet and the people were called together to follow him. The Spirit of the Lord. The book of Judges is really about people who are distinctive because they're clothed with power. That's what made them stand out. There was a a coming upon them of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't simply their own uh, intellect or personality or prestige. It wasn't because their father was king before them. The only thing that marked them out was the clothing of the Spirit upon them. The Spirit came upon Samson. The Spirit came upon Jephthah. The Spirit came upon and clothed himself, clothed Gideon. There came that energy from heaven. We mustn't lose our Longing and expectation of knowing a clothing of power from on high. We mustn't get confused. We mustn't say, well, there's a, you know, we're charismatic because we have an overhead and a guitar. We need to know the power of God upon us. We need to know that energy factor. We need to make sure that people are experiencing the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit falling upon us, energizing us, strengthening us. God wants you to make sure that you know the Spirit of God has come upon you, that God has met with you, that you're not vague about this. This is God's wonderful provision for his church. In the Old Testament, isolated individuals, a king, one of the judges, a a priest, a prophet, just isolated, rare individuals who knew this high privilege. But in our generation, in the last days, I'll pour my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men see visions. God is expecting to clothe the whole community with power from on high. So that as we gather, as we go with him, we can see phenomenal things taking place that give evidence that God is amongst us. His presence is with us. Let's not water down our anticipation of the Spirit of God in our life and experience. And even as we're here together, to know what it is to have the power of God amongst us in our church life, in our individual lives, to know what it is to be clothed with another power, another force, nothing to do with us, is come down out of heaven, is God's gift to us. This is the thing that marked out these uh, judges, and this is what marked out Gideon. So here on this first evening, as we must uh, come to a conclusion here, let's just see the situation, a church A people of God, yeah, living in caves, not impacting their generation. They begin to cry out, Lord, what's this about? Why is it like this? God sends a prophet and says, listen, it's because of the compromise in Israel. It's not because the enemy is too strong. I am not blessing you. But I am willing to start afresh with you. I'm willing to start a new day. I'm willing to break through. I'm willing to break the power of the Midianites, which is going to happen in this next chapter. That awesome uh, power that keeps coming in and taking away our fruit. So that we plant, we work, we do our outreach, we, we sow our seed, but oh, 
Again, what would no one was added? Nothing happened. That sense of frustration. God's allowed that to happen. Now I said, come on, seek me, put me first, get right before me, you'll see what I will do. That's their commitment. So they begin. God begins to engage. He's looking around and says, right, I've spoken. The seven years is coming to an end. My time of breakthrough is coming. Now, as God is ready to do a new thing, and I believe he's ready in our generation to do a new thing, he's given us such wonderful promises about a new day coming, even another generation pressing through. God's looking, he's looking, saying, where are they? Where are the ones I can start with? I can, I can invest in them amazing stories, ripples that will go out, coming from each one, each Gideon. And he said, well, I'm too weak. No, you qualify. Not many mighty get in. If you're mighty, you're lucky you got in. Not many wise, not many noble. God's looking for the weak, even the foolish. God can use the weak. Hallelujah. So here I am, Lord. I just want to give myself. And in fact, I do long for you to move in my generation. I will respond to you. I will mean business with you. I give myself unreservedly. And I will believe you when you say, Lord, I'm a mighty man. I'm a man of valor. I will believe you. I will believe I can do it. I will believe as we go to plant a church, or as we go to do a new outreach, as we start a new alpha, whatever we're giving ourselves to, God, you are committed to us. There has to be that rise of faith that says, yes, Lord. And then we need to be ruthless with compromise. Any area, say, Lord, I'm not going to give myself to that anymore. I'm so sorry that I've not given you my pure devotion. God does want to see you to see your relationship with him in this marriage context. God is wounded when we give ourselves disloyally. It's like you're, you're with a God who is who's like a husband to you. He doesn't want to see you flirting with others. He doesn't want to see you engaging with others. You, he wants to give himself jealously to you. He's jealously looking for your love. He's, he wants your exclusive love, like a husband is wanting the exclusive love of his wife. I had the privilege of being at a wedding on Saturday. That man's exclusively looking for the love of his wife. He's not saying, well, of course, you may have a few more friends. You might give your heart somewhere else in a week or two. No, that's, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's outrageous. And God is saying, come on, catch it. I want your devotion. You're my bride. I purchased you. You're for me. I can satisfy your heart totally. Don't turn. Israel made this terrible thing. They forsook the fountain of living water and started digging out holes for themselves that could contain no water. God is saying to us, don't put your trust in other gods. Don't put your trust in mammon. Don't go after the ugly things that offer sophistication. Cling to me. Cling to me. I'll be there for you. I'll stand by you. I want you to be ruthless. I want you to enjoy the clothing of my spirit. And to that kind of commitment, God begins to gather an army that would see an amazing triumph. And we'll look at that at the next session. Let's just stand to pray. Good if the musicians could come up. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just draw near to God. Father, we thank you so much for your zealous determination to glorify your Son. We thank you for your commitment that of the increase of his government there will be no end. We thank you, Jesus, that you want to include us in Lord, we want to stand up and identify with this amazing truth and reality. Lord, we're here for you, Lord, in all our weakness. You know how weak we are. You know we bring very little to this table, Lord, just backsliding and shabbiness. But we thank you for your wholehearted commitment to us. Lord, right now, tonight, we're reaching to you. We pray, Father, that you will have our hearts, that we might give ourselves unreservedly to your holy cause. I pray for any here tonight who know that they have more than one God in their home, more than, more, more than one God in their life. Father, I ask in Jesus' name for your merciful 
clear deliverance, your wonderful searching work to happen by the Spirit. Lord Jesus, we long to see a great army raised up in our generation. We long to see you vindicated, glorified. We thank you, Lord. You promised it would be like this. There are features in this battle that hold keys for us. So, Holy Spirit, I pray, come speaking. Come to one after another and win us and woo us and speak confidence into us, Father. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will turn and look on some here and speak your word. Bring forth acts of courageous obedience. Glorify your wondrous name as we hear you and obey you and do your bidding. Holy Spirit, be glorified in our generation. We long to see that light, the people who sat in darkness suddenly seeing a great light. We pray that it come through our church planting, our witnessing, all that we give ourselves to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.